Amen, amen. Hey, uh, grab a seat, and uh, as you do, uh, grab your Bible, Genesis chapter 16, Genesis 16, and uh, as you turn there, let me just uh, draw our attention to, uh, there's a common phrase we'll use when we want to take control of something. Uh, the phrase you'll often hear said, or maybe we say from time to time, is this, I'm taking matters into my own hands. Uh, typically, we'll say this when we feel like, Something isn't happening how we would like it to, or something, something's not happening as quickly as we would like it to. And so we say, I'm going to take control of this. I'm taking matters into my own hands. Um, we're going to see an awful example today of taking matters into their own hands. Last week, we watched in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God comes and he he, uh, he has this powerful covenant ceremony with Abraham. Uh, it, it was kind of a bizarre scene for our day in which Abraham uh, cuts animals in half and lays a path and uh, the Lord comes down and uh, with a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, he alone passes through the animals and in so doing so, he's saying, Abraham, I will be faithful to this covenant I'm making with you. I'm not even asking you to pass through with me because I know you and your descendants cannot, do not have the power to remain faithful to me, but I want you to know in spite of your faith wavering, faith wandering, faithlessness, I will be forever faithful. And on the heels of just what had to have been one of those trophy case moments in Abraham's life, we come to what we see in Genesis 16. It's just like an epic faith fail in his life. Um, but here's what we're going to see today. It really, uh, I, I've broken today's message into three different parts. Um, uh, the first part we're just calling our resolve. And, and we want to learn something from chapter 16 today. Of, uh, and we want to resolve something together in light of what we learned from chapter 16. But um, we're also going to be reminded something as we journey into chapter 17. We're going to be reminded of God's absolute covenant faithfulness even after some epic faith fails. And then we're going to close uh, the service today by just being reassured of something down to the very identity of who we are, of who God says we are, that we also see as we get into chapter 17 as well. So a resolve, a reminder, and a reassurance here for us today. But let's pick it up together in uh, chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay, so just uh, some moment for us to participate together. Uh, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Yeah, this is a bad idea. This has family dysfunction written all over it. This is Jerry Springer, Maury Povich type stuff that we're witnessing here. And you read this, and you hope that Abram, come on, faithful man, spiritual leader of your house, talk your wife off the family dysfunction ledge here. Middle of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Let's summarize the dysfunction here. Uh, in Abram's day and in this culture, uh, someone who, as we've been told throughout the chapters here, who's accumulated the riches and the possessions like Abram has, there were servants in the household. Some of these servants um, assigned to serve the wife. Sarai takes one of these servants, Hagar, uh, and says, what if uh, she became a wife of yours too and we tried to have this offspring? What if we tried to fulfill this promise that way? What if we took matters into our own hands here instead of waiting on the Lord to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it? And Abram says, great idea, let's go that route. And so Hagar conceives. The moment she conceives, she looks with contempt, disgust, disdain on Sarai. Sarai, in turn, is mad about this. She points the finger at Abram. Abram says, hey, I don't know. Uh, she's your servant. Do with her what you want. So she, treats, she starts treating Hagar harshly to the point that we now, as this paragraph comes to a close, we now have a pregnant former servant in the household who's now a wife out on the run. This is dysfunction in the highest. And a perfect example of how messy life gets when we, instead of waiting on the Lord, take matters into our own hands. I, I want you to look at the beginning of verse 7, though, and let me read this to us. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Uh, there's something so encouraging to me about just that simple verse, and it's this. That in the midst of this mess, the Lord intervenes. In the midst of this mess, the Lord draws near. That we have a God who does not distance himself from us in the midst of some of life's biggest messes, but instead draws near. And the Lord draws near here to Hagar, verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's interesting. There's now a promise over this son's life that they too will grow to be a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Stop right there. And so the angel of the Lord tells Hagar out near the spring after Hagar had run away, you will have a son. Your son's name should be Ishmael. Ishmael means the Lord hears because the Lord has heard you in your distress. Now, 
the Lord is going to um, reveal the destiny of Ishmael. What will Ishmael's legacy be? Here it is, verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Um, in all of the years we've done parent commissionings, I've yet to find Genesis 16:12 claimed over a child's life up here. I mean, can you imagine being Hagar and hearing this? He'll be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He will live at odds with his kinsmen and strife with his kinsmen all of his days. And you take this, what it says about Ishmael and his descendants, you read the rest of the book, and it's exactly what happens. The descendants of Ishmael are constantly at odds with the descendant of the coming son of the covenant, Isaac. The descendants of Ishmael throughout the rest of the story are a massive thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Not only does Abram and Sarai's disobedience have deep and lasting consequences for their lifetime, for the rest of biblical history, but it has had deep and lasting consequences throughout all of history. Up to this day, we still see this reality lived out of the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac at odds and at strife, exactly as we see here in Genesis chapter 16. And I can't go into all of that today, but I would just leave you with some fascinating study on your own to follow that line there. This is a mess. And how was it started? It was started because God had appeared to Abram four times already and said, you will father a nation, you will father a nation, you will father a nation, you'll have a son, you'll have a son, you'll have a son. I covenant this with you. And instead of waiting on the Lord's timing, Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands. And so uh, out of Genesis chapter 16, let's resolve something together today. Let's make a resolution together. And here it is. I won't take matters into my hands that are meant to be left in God's hands. I won't take matters into my hands that are meant to be left in God's hands. There is a great temptation in our human fallenness to want to take control of things that God is not asking us to take control of. There's a great temptation in our humanness to want to see things move faster than God in his sovereignty um, has allotted things to move. And so there's a great temptation in our humanness to begin to scheme and to do things apart from the Lord instead of waiting in prayer and trust for what the Lord has when he has it. And, and I, I just want to ask like uh, this, uh, all of us a question today. Is there anything in our life? Is there any area of our life 
we have sought to take into our own hands that we need to release back into the Lord's hands today? Are we trying to drive the timeline of something instead of trusting the Lord for the timeline? Are we trying to make something happen instead of the Lord, waiting for the Lord to make it happen? But we have to remember, when we take matters into our own hand, exactly as we've seen on a massive scale here in Genesis chapter 16, things only end badly. Things only get hard. We only make life more complicated, and often the consequences of that can run deep and can last a very long time. And so in Genesis chapter 16, we see this of Abram and Sarai just going, listen, I, we're not going to wait on the Lord. We're not going to trust him for it. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And, and, and he, it, it's, it's what makes how Genesis 17 starts so fascinating to me. That you have in Genesis 15, this unbelievable scene of God covenanting his faithfulness with Abraham. You have in Genesis 16, just this, what I call an epic faith fail on their part. And then as Genesis 17 begins, we are going to see God not distance himself from them, not be like, man, I'm, like, I'm so done with you guys. I'm over it. I'm over the, the, the ebbing and the flowing of your faith. And as Genesis 17 starts, we're going to watch God double down on his faithfulness to Abraham. Look at how Genesis 17 starts here. When Abram was, how old is he now? 99. Okay, when we met him in Genesis chapter 12, he was 75. And so what we have just walked through in four or five chapters has been 24 years of time in reality. Uh, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so on the heels of this epic faith fail in Genesis chapter 16, Genesis 17 starts with this account years later of God doubling down on his faithfulness to them. The fifth time God appears and he says, you will be a nation, but he, he, he now speaks with even greater specificity. Look at, look at what he says here. Um, um, uh, You're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. In fact, Abraham, Abram, I'm going to change your very name to represent your new identity. 
Abraham means a father of a multitude. Your very name will be a reminder to you of this promise that you will father a multitude. You'll be the father of nations. From you, you'll be exceedingly fruitful. From you, kings will come. This land, the land of Canaan, it's all going to be yours. And I want you, just as we looked a couple of weeks ago, the very first time God appeared and told Abraham all these things, I want you to just look on your own to see all the times in that paragraph God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will, I will, I will. I mean, again, one chapter previous, we just watched one of the most dysfunctional, faithless acts we could ever see. And here we see God here at the beginning of chapter 17, just, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will be faithful to you. I've covenanted it with you. We split animals apart, and I showed you this back at the ceremony of this covenant, and it hasn't changed in spite of some really dumb and faithless things that Abram has done. Here's the reminder for us sitting in the room today. God remains faithful even after my faith fails. God remains faithful even after my faith fails. Um, we, we just kind of blow it sometimes, right? I mean, let's just chart out Abraham's story and see if we can relate to it at all. I mean, uh, where we met Abraham, just was a giant leap of faith. He leaves Haran. I mean, it's it just, right, he leaves everything he knows, and he goes to what he doesn't know, and we're like, wow, like, what a man of faith, and then they make their way down to Egypt, and he lies, and he's like, hey, Sarah, here's the deal, like, you're really pretty, they're going to want to marry you, so let's just say you're my sister. If you miss that part, you got to go back and read that, he really did that, and then uh, there's this scene shortly after that, where uh, he believes the Lord, the Lord takes him out under the night sky, and the Lord's like, hey, look at the stars, your descendants are going to number that. And he's, he believes the Lord and the Lord credits to him as righteousness. And then we get to chapter 16, what I'm calling Abraham lusting after making the covenant happen, trying to control it all on his own. And, and they just absolutely blow it there. But then we see as Genesis 17 starts, the Lord comes back to him and appears to him. Abraham goes down on his face and worships. And we're going to see later after this that God's going to come and he's going to promise a son of the covenant to them. And they're going to laugh about this like, no way. I'm 99. There's no way this is going to happen. And Abraham's journey is one of giant leaps of faith followed by some faith failures. Can you relate at all? I mean, you with me? Don't you just wish life was up and to the right all the time in our faith journey? Like, I just wish, like, the, 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 the biography of my life could be, uh, could be uh, written one day. Like, man, 19, Brock trusted the Lord, and from there, like, boom, it's just soaring with Jesus the rest of the way. Don't you want that to be the story of your life? Here's the encouragement. God promises us that he's sanctifying us. Amen? We're not who we one day will be, but praise the Lord, we're not who we one day were. Are you with me? That you look at your life and you look over a period of time and the work at Christ in you is turning you more into a greater likeness of Jesus Christ. But you and I both know it. There's some ebbs and flows along the way. 
And there's some seasons and some days of just some giant steps of faith. And then there's some seasons and some days of some lapses in faith. Here's the encouraging thing, and here's the reminder for us. God's faithfulness does not ebb and flow with our faith journey. God's faithfulness does not wax and wane in our broken walk. His faithfulness is always up and to the right. And it never changes. And we can't lose sight of that. I I said this last week in in some way, and I want to say it again this week. Your faith doesn't rest on how strong you can keep your faith. Your faith doesn't rest on like how hard you can white knuckle it to be a faithful person. Your faith rests on Jesus Christ who was and is the faithful one on your behalf. So that the moment you believe, you are hidden in Christ, robed in his righteousness. And and, and one day, when you stand before the Lord and he goes, man, were you faithful your whole life? Oh, Lord, you know I wasn't. But here's the thing. I am hidden in your faithful son, Jesus Christ. That's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we have. And it's why the good news of the gospel is really good news. That we have a faithful one on our behalf, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't lose sight of that. You can't lose sight of that. So often, after one of these dips in the faith journey, you can watch people tailspin out of control. And it's because they've lost, it's often because, it's often because they've lost sight of going, man, their acts of faithlessness doesn't change God's faithfulness to them. And they need to repent and turn back and get walking again with Jesus. But I just want us to be reminded on the heels of Genesis 16 of just epic faith fail, God coming and doubling down to say, listen, I'm faithful, I'm faithful, I'm faithful. Guess what, Abraham? It hasn't changed what I will do. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And now, again, we're like last week, we saw the bizarro like ceremony scene of ancient Near East. We come to another um, If you have some Bible familiarity, this might, on the surface, might not seem so weird to you at first, but if you don't have any Bible familiarity, you're going to be like, what? Where did this sermon just go? Okay? There's an important act that's about to happen in which God is going to call Abraham to. Remember, he's just doubled down to go, listen, I am the God of the covenant. Everything that I've just said to you, I will do. But now as you, you as, as, as my covenant people, I'm literally going to mark that covenant in your flesh. Look at what happens here in uh, Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in all your flesh an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a section of scripture who, when you grew up in Sunday school and you came to and you raised your hand to ask questions, the Sunday school teacher didn't give you an answer. If you really want to know, does this church teach all of the Bible? Case in point. Um, you come to this section, and, and we see what God is doing here. Um, he literally says it. Um, you shall, in verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The Lord wants a sign of the covenant marked into the men of the covenant community's very flesh. Um, Tim Keller has a great teaching on this from the Gospel Coalition Conference in 2015. You can YouTube that later. Uh, but in it, he, he, he does a great job answering this question. Why that? Why not something else? Lord, could we settle for a tattoo? Why that? And while there is no chapter and verse in the Bible that you can point to and say, and this is why God chose circumcision, I think Tim Keller does a great job bringing out some of it. And here's what he says about it. He says, it's weird. It's bloody. It's gory. It's intimate. Why that? And he goes on to talk about, he says, um, because sin is bloody and gory and intimate. And God chooses a tender and intimate act to be done to the men of the covenant community who are to be the spiritual leaders within the covenant community as a reminder to them that sin is bloody and gory and intimate and to have a lasting mark on their body that would remind them that they were to be his covenant people set apart for holiness. That right down to their very flesh, there was a reminder built in to say, you are set apart. Remember from a painful act of gore and blood that this is what sin is. You are a people to be set apart, marked in your very skin as God's covenant people. Why that? I, I don't know entirely, but here's what I do know. We do know that God has chosen an act here to mark his people so that they are set apart for holiness. And there's something in that act that is to be the very reminder to them of that. Now, this idea of circumcision doesn't just stay right here in this chapter and paragraph of the Bible. This theme of circumcision is woven all through the scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we are going to find the Lord says that he desires that his people are circumcised in their heart. In Jeremiah chapter 4, again, we're going to find that the Lord is saying, I want my people to be circumcised in their hearts. When we turn to the New Testament, when we see the writings of the Apostle Paul, he's going to talk about that God's people are to be set apart ones, circumcised in their hearts. God 
desires and God works in his people that we would be set apart ones, circumcised, marked and circumcised in our very heart. I, I want you to look at what Colossians chapter 2 says because this theme continues all through the scriptures, as I've said here. It says in Colossians chapter 2 this, in him also... You are circumcised. So he's talking to believers. He's talking to Jesus followers. In him, believers, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about a, a spiritual reality that harkens back to this physical picture we've seen in the Old Testament. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, whoa, what did this just say? Uh, keep that up if you can, Dakota. In him also, you're circumcised with a spiritual circumcision made without hands, and this happens by the circumcision of Christ. What, what does all this mean? Um, we know throughout all of the Bible that God is interested in our hearts, amen? He wants our hearts. What? He wants, listen, like, please, let's never grow to become church, a church, a body of believers who think following Jesus is all of just this legalistic outward expression, this legalistic religious ritual. Jesus is after our hearts. He's not fake. He's not fooled by all of our fake religious routine. He wants our hearts. He wants your heart. Why? Because the heart is the control center of all of our life. The heart worships. Your heart worships something. The heart loves. The heart desires. The heart treasures. The heart longs for. And so we, before we believe in Jesus Christ, have hearts that are broken Hearts that are dead. Hearts that love and desire and treasure and long for the wrong things. We need new hearts. We need heart transplants. Praise be to Jesus Christ. The one who can take the knife and give us a circumcised heart. How does he do that? He does that, what Colossians 2 says, by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is that? It is when Christ climbed the cross and went under the Lord's knife, went under God's knife, so to speak, to be cut for our sin, to be killed for our sin. And the only way we are given a new heart, a circumcised heart, as the scriptures call it, is to believe on this Savior who was cut and killed on our behalf and to be hidden in him. The moment faith, the moment we believe in Christ, he gives us this new heart that is being sanctified over time, that is growing into greater Christ-likeness over time. The Lord is after our hearts, and his people are people circumcised in heart, with hearts set apart to worship and treasure him. And this is exactly what Romans chapter 2 tells us. Look at what Romans chapter 2 says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. That's a massive statement Paul just made there. Big time. But a Jew is one 
inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? The heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Here's, uh, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm trying to tie all together. And here's what I hope you've seen throughout all of our teachings in the book of Genesis. That this act that God institutes for his covenant people here in Genesis chapter 16 was meant to be a physical sign of mark in their flesh that they were to be set apart wholly as God's covenant people. We too today under Christ are to be people marked and set apart as God's covenant holy people. And how does that happen? It happens by believing in Jesus Christ and now living with this new heart, this circumcised heart that loves, longs for, treasures, and desires him. And I want you to be reassured of that today. Here's the reassurance. We said a a resolve, a reminder, then here's the reassurance. In Christ, he has marked you and made you a son or a daughter of the covenant. How? Everything I just said. By giving you a new heart, a circumcised heart, the moment you believed in him. You are set apart as a son or daughter of God Most High, and you can't ever forget that. It's part of the very identity of who you are. And so church, I'm going to send us out of here today. If you would, stand to your feet. And as you stand to your feet, I I want to leave you with a, a challenge this week, something to consider this week. Today, we had three parts, this resolve. Uh, I want you to think about this week, in light of this resolve, what have you taken control of that you need to relinquish back into God's hands? What have you taken into your hands that you need to give back to God? What are you trying to control? What are you trying to drive the timeline of that, frankly, God never asked you to? Would you hand that back to the Lord this week? This reminder, be reminded this week. God's faithfulness does not ebb and flow, does not wax and wane with your acts of faith. God's faithfulness remains the same on days and in seasons where your faith is soaring and God's faithfulness remains the same on days and in seasons when you've absolutely blown it. And this reassurance, don't ever forget that you have been marked and made and set apart as a son or daughter of God Most High the moment you have believed in Jesus and have been given a new heart by him. One that the scriptures say is circumcised in heart, set apart to be holy and growing into greater Christ-likeness. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Don't ever forget it on your best days and in your worst days. Don't ever forget that. Amen. Redeemer, you are loved and you are sent. And if we've never met you, we'd love to right here at step one, right after the service. Have a good week. We'll see you next Sunday.